Thank you very much, uh, Jim, and uh, welcome, welcome everybody. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be here and uh, delighted to be part of what uh, I consider to be a very important initiative. Uh, certainly, from the point of view of uh, of Horizon, that is the case. From the point of view of Queensland, that is the case. From the point of view of Australia, that's the case, and that's what I hope to develop as uh, as part of our theme in the time that we spend together this afternoon. But can I start also by acknowledging uh, Ashana Singh, the Honorary Consul of, uh, of India. Uh, Robin Xavier, thank you very much. Craig, how does one follow that level of, uh, of enthusiasm? Uh, <coughs> and, uh, and of course Jim, who, uh, who in this space is, uh, is, is legendary. And, that's representative, I think, in so many ways, uh, the passion that we see in, uh, uh, as, we, uh, as we think about uh, Australia, India and the opportunity that, uh, that lies ahead of us. It is great to be here and to have the opportunity to uh, be able to make these remarks to you this afternoon in this context. As I look around the room, uh, there are so many of you who have frankly, a much closer association with India than, uh, than do I, uh, and I feel something of an interloper in, uh, uh, in that context. I'm also, of course, reminded that uh, almost by definition as Australians and Indians, uh, uh, we must be passionate cricket followers, so I know that your alternative was to be at the Gabba uh, and watch Australia thrash the Kiwis, our mutual enemy, uh, so I'm delighted to... Uh, be able in that context also to share time with you this afternoon. Can I begin, given uh, the uh, particular focus that uh, Horizon has in the diversity space as well, uh, and, and our commitment to, uh, to diversity and respect, uh, to also acknowledge the Turrbal and Yagara people, uh, the traditional owners of the land upon which we, uh, we meet today, recognising that this land has always been under their custodianship. I also pay my respect to their elders, past and present, uh, and extend my respect to any of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent uh, who are with us today. Uh, I am, notwithstanding the, uh, uh, the levity, uh, grateful to uh, Jim for the, uh, for the invitation. Uh, to, uh, to share with you some of my perspective. Uh, some of my perspective, as I'll say in a moment, that, uh, that goes back to the kind of history that uh, Jim has just referred to, but particularly to think about this from the prism, if you will, uh, generally, but uh, especially from the prism of Horizon, and I'll talk about that uh, as, we, uh, as we spend time together this afternoon. <clears throat> It's important, I think, because I see that our collective role, and, uh, and Craig went to, uh, to this as well, is to engender better understanding, uh, looking at both the rich history of our countries and the relationship between our countries, more particularly, of course, we're all here because of what we see and, uh, and consider to be the opportunity in the, uh, in the future. And how do, we, how do we create that future for ourselves? How do we take advantage of the kind of opportunity that's represented by 
uh, the statistics that, uh, that Craig spoke about and that I'll talk about here in a moment. I don't profess to be an expert on India, <clears throat> not by any stretch of the imagination. However, I can lay claim to a long-term, more than 25 years, deep personal interest and experience of, uh, of India. <clears throat> Uh, indeed, my first trip to, uh, to India was to visit, again continuing the cricket uh, metaphor, uh, M.A. Chidam Ch- Baran, uh, the head at that time of the South India Corporation, who was the, uh, the founder and, uh, and, and CEO of the uh, shipping agency that back in those uh, BHP days were used in, uh, uh, in India. It does continue to surprise me, frankly, uh, how little, speaking generally as I travel through the business and other community in Australia, how little is known about India in in any kind of real and meaningful uh, way. How little is known about the nature of our interaction, the trade with uh, India, and of course the opportunity that lies ahead for us. So much, of course, is focused on China, and we all understand why, and it's not a criticism in that sense. But to the extent that we've all been associated with, benefited from and learned from that association with China, I think it's timely that we, uh, we take up the same kind of approach to, uh, to India. Few know, uh, as, as I refer to uh, this degree of knowledge, for example, that in the first six months of this calendar year, uh, India surpassed North Asia as the principal, the biggest destination for expert exports of metallurgical coal from Australia. Now, there's probably a number of people in this room who will roll their eyes at, uh, at that kind of, uh, of, of example of what I'm talking about, but... In my experience, whether it's talking to government, whether it's talking more broadly, uh, there are very few people who understand that there is that kind of association altogether. Fewer, though, would realise that in as long ago as in 1799, Australia's very first coal export was to Bengal. And this story, if you'll indulge me for a moment or two, is a quintessentially Australian tale. So the year is now 1797, a little less than three decades after Australia was first discovered by Europeans. A group of convicts in Sydney had decided that they perhaps weren't so happy with life in Australia. Uh, They seized a ship, the HMS Cumberland, uh, threw the officers overboard uh, and sailed north for warmer climes. The boatload of convicts is not the topic, though, that I'm uh, particularly associating with us this afternoon. That role forms to an English lieutenant, Lieutenant John Shortley, who was in pursuit of said stolen ship. Uh, And because he made landing near the mouth of a major river north of of Sydney, uh, he saw coal along the riverbank. He returned to Sydney with reports of this deep water port and the abundant nature of the coal. 
The river, of course, was the Hunter River. The city today is Newcastle. And it was from here that the potential of that whole area began to be recognised. What is truly remarkable is that just two years later, 50 tonnes of coal from Newcastle was, to put, was put onto the bark, the Hunter, and it sailed via Sydney, as I say, to Bengal. And therein again lay the commencement of the coal trade from Australia generally and the, uh, the trading relationship between Australia and, uh, and India. And if you think of Newcastle today, the largest coal port in the world, and what has, uh, what has developed from those, uh, those early beginnings, it's, it's a remarkable story. It also, though, says a lot about the resourcefulness of Australians, the ability of Australians to, uh, to get things done. Might also say a few things about our convict past, but uh, we'll, we'll pass by that. Let me then, as we get into it this afternoon, start with a few more contemporary facts. <clears throat> These, in my view, illustrate the interest for Australia and for Australian companies like Horizon and the tremendous emerging opportunities for all of us uh, that India represents. India, as we know, is the world's largest economy with a population of roughly 1.2 billion. It is experienced sustained growth of the kind that, uh, that Craig mentioned. This year it has overtaken China amongst the major economies as the world's fastest growing economy. And indeed, over recent months, both OECD and IMF uh, have said that the Indian economy is strong and stable and will continue to grow over the next few years at that 7.2-7.5% growth in GDP. Strong macroeconomic fundamentals are reflected then in the growth of the middle class in India, reflected in increasing rates of urbanisation, reflected in per capita consumption of steel and energy that I'll come back to in my remarks this afternoon, as well as growth generally in import and export volumes. As we know, the Modi government has pursued a strong reform agenda since coming to power in May of 2014. The key pillars, as all of us in this room are aware, are firstly the stimulation of the manufacturing and energy sectors in India, facilitating infrastructure investment, financial and regulatory reform, and elimination of government red tape. Recent years then have seen remarkable growth in the trading relationship between Australia and India. Bilateral trade in goods and services grew from $6.8 billion in 2003-04 to the $15.8 billion in 2014 that Craig referred to. On the other hand, the scale of the opportunity for further growth in the relationship can be seen when as, as uh, significant and remarkable as those numbers are when we compare, for example, with China and the United States. <clears throat> the equivalent of that $15.8 billion is $60.4 billion with the United States and a staggering $152 billion of reciprocal trade with China. 
More than that, <coughs> indeed, in that year, in 2014, Australia was only the 17th largest import source for India and the 33rd largest export destination. <coughs> in combination, then, a tremendous opportunity. Similarly, if we go beyond trade to in-country investment and think about that for a moment in terms of our two nations, <coughs> once again, the relationship between Australia and India is dwarfed by the United States and China. <coughs> in 2014, according to DFAT, reciprocal investment between Australia and India amounted to some $20.8 billion. $20 billion whereas the equivalent for China was $122.4 billion. And the number, I guess not surprisingly, but talk about a staggering number, with the United States was $1.3 trillion. In that context, the efforts of our two governments to increase the bilateral economic relationship and our role as business and community leaders in that regard has to be seen in the context of what I think those numbers alone demonstrate to us, the enormous opportunity that is on our doorstep if we have the wherewithal and the capability to be able to capture the opportunity. <clears throat> and of course in that regard negotiations are progressing positively on the pro proposed free trade agreement between our nations. In my view, concluding the FTA will be a further spur to trade, not only in terms of traditional trade, such as the resources areas that I'll talk about in it here in a moment, not only in goods, but more particularly in services and in education, uh, about which we've heard this afternoon. In the latter case, take, for example, the fact that India will need to train some 400 million people to a post-secondary level over coming years. In that context, again, in 2014 numbers, there were some 63,000 full fee-paying Indian students uh, in Australia. A terrific number. Albeit that the equivalent number of students at that time in Australia from China was 153,000. Here's the platform, therefore, for great commercial opportunities for Australian companies and institutions in deepening relationships, growing that mutual interest in trade, in services and in education. Horizon is one of those companies that's actively looking to expand our interest in Horizons with and engagement with India. A little background there. <clears throat> Horizon, as no doubt most of you know, is Australia's largest rail freight company. And in many senses, we are a barometer of the national economic activity. We're significantly leveraged, in particular, to export resources out of Australia. The, the mineral resources, the agricultural products. We are, in fact, the predominant carrier of Australian export coal with our trains carrying 54% of all exports in FY15. About 22%, or roughly 50 million tonnes, of Indian coal exports were sourced, on the other hand, 
from Australia last financial year. The majority of this, as I alluded to earlier on, was metallurgical coal used for steel making. Only about 7 million tonnes of thermal coal was imported from Australia for Indian power generation. While India was the largest market for Australia's metallurgical coal in the first half of this year, there remains considerable scope for growth given that Australia's total, of Australia's total exports, India only represented 13%. Over coming years, India looks to cement an even stronger position of one of Australia's major coal export destinations. In terms of exports from Australia, the opportunity I would like to draw out today here, therefore, is focused on the growth of both steel and energy sectors in India and on Australia's high quality and abundant coal reserves. This opportunity, of course, flows through the supply chain to Australian miners, to rail and port operators and other infrastructure and service providers. We also see in-country opportunity in India, especially as we go through this process of economic re-energisation in India, and I'll come to talk to that uh, a little later. At Horizon, as we think about business development opportunity, we take first and foremost an evidence-based approach, looking at the best data, the best research and analysis market intelligence from authorities such as the International Energy Agency and the World Bank. Beyond that, though, we all in this room understand that, in addition, there is tremendous value in on-the-ground understanding and the building of relationships. In addition to that experience of nearly 25 years that I spoke about earlier on, Together with some of my executive colleagues, most recently I spent a week in India earlier this year learning firsthand about market demand, about key economic drivers. We were very fortunate in being given an extraordinary level of access to some of the country's best economic and government advisers. For me, this knowledge has reinforced and reaffirmed my confidence in India's future economic growth. And most tellingly, especially in the resource sector with which we are most associated, counterbalances some of what in any language is the uninformed and indeed blatantly biased commentary on coal. That's becoming ever more commonplace, as we know just from reading the newspapers every day. And it's particularly the case for thermal coal and energy demand. We know, for example, that there's a pipeline of power plants under construction in, in, in India equating to about 84 gigawatts of energy. These will require around an additional 250 million tonnes of coal input each year. About 13.3 gigawatts of this output is located on the coast and is well positioned to utilise imported product, which translates roughly to an additional 40 million tonnes of additional thermal coal every year. <coughs> 
from 2017 as part of its reform process, the Modi government has mandated that all new coal-fired projects are required to use supercritical technology or better. These technologies operate at a higher efficiency than subcritical plants such as, and as such, use less coal and generate fewer emissions. <coughs> plants using these technologies run more optimally using high energy, low ash coal that, for example, are produced by all of the Australian miners. India's own coal resources, whilst abundant by comparison, are typically low energy and high ash. Now, the coal sceptics put forward the proposition that renewables are going to miraculously fill the energy void that I've just described in the coming decades in India. Invariably, in modelling those outcomes, these pundits use a growth rate most typically of 5%, whereas, as we discussed earlier on, even today the growth rates are in the mid-sevens in India. To add a little more context, in terms of installed capacity, coal today represents 61% and renewables just 13% of existing Indian capacity. Thus, in simple mathematical terms, if you assume that coal, as IEA predicts, will grow at 2% per annum, for renewables to even equal that increase would require a 10% per annum compound growth. Don't take me wrong. I and Horizon certainly accept the scientific consensus on climate change and we agree that renewables will grow and indeed must grow. It is not either or, however. Electricity demand and consumption will grow at a faster rate and coal will continue to be the key low-cost, reliable source of energy. This is the position which is not just our position but the position, for example, of the International Energy Agency. This is not an ideological discussion, nor is it a moral argument, but rather a practical, pragmatic approach to a country's rapidly growing energy needs. <clears throat> we also need, in my view, a little broader perspective. India itself currently produces about 600 million tonnes of coal each year and certainly has very big ambitions to grow this production. Again, we readily acknowledge that government policy will determine that the vast majority of thermal coal supply, the increase in thermal coal supply, will be from domestic sources. However, the niche for Australia coal producers is abundantly clear. Off a very small base of just 1 million tonnes in 2005, thermal coal exports grew sixfold to 7 million tonnes at the beginning of this year. The opportunity is there in the way that I've described for high-quality Australian coal in fuelling those new technology power plants. In combination, in partnership, if you will, with the increase in the domestic demand. This would certainly be an enabler for the next 
accelerated phase of Indian economic and social development. It would assist India achieve higher economic activity at a lower emissions intensity. Let me then turn away from the energy sector to the steel sector and to metallurgical coal. As China's economy rebalances, India has emerged as the key source of future commodity demand growth. And that's particularly the case for seaborne metallurgical coal. Consumption of metallurgical coal by India's steel industry is projected to increase significantly over coming years. Again, reflecting that rapid growth and demand off what today is still a relatively modest base. Steel stock in use in this regard is a useful metric to illustrate the point that I'm making. This refers to the accumulated quantity of steel in capital goods, such as buildings, infrastructures, cars, machinery. And on a per capita basis, the steel stock in use in India's economy today is 0.7 tonnes, which compares with China today at 5.6 tonnes and developed economies such as the United States where the equivalent number is in excess of 13 tonnes. To put it a little differently, in other words, India is around 25 years behind China in terms of steel consumption. To meet this growing demand, Wood Mackenzie forecast India's annual crude steel production will more than double over the next 15 years, from the current level of some 85 million tonnes to 176 million tonnes by 2030. Impressive numbers. <clears throat> that would represent, in fact, an additional 60 million tonnes of demand for met metallurgical coal. In fact, these numbers themselves could be very conservative. If predictions by Indian Steel and Mines Minister Narendra Singh eventuate, he observed in an A uh, and an uh, interview that he gave to the Wall Street Journal in the middle of this year that, that it, Indian steel companies were in the process of spending some $46 billion in order to be able to treble their steel production by 2025. Extraordinary numbers. India, of course, has minimal domestic coal resources to meet that increased demand. Australian producers and Horizon, therefore, are optimally positioned to satisfy that future growth in the demand for seaborne metallurgical coal. Let's then step away from the coal story for a moment and bring the discussion back to the commercial opportunity more generally here in Australia. And in this regard, to think about the... Uh, the coal opportunity, the investment in Queensland around thermal coal. As Horizon, we've been a key participant in assessing what, on any analysis, the massive opportunity represented, g'day Tim, well, particularly by the Galilee Basin. As you all know, we've been working with GBK Hancock 
Uh, and we also, of course, are well aware of the advanced work that Adani is doing in this space. Here, Queensland is so well positioned. Large reserves of high-quality thermal coal, low overburden and strip ratios. Equally, let's not kid ourselves, at this point in the commodity cycle, we clearly understand the challenging investment case for those proposed developments and for the associated rail and port infrastructure. Galilee mines, after all, are much further from ports than the existing mines and without access to, to the existing central Queensland coal network. Our aim at Horizon has been clear and consistent all through this discussion and debate. The Galilee needs the most economically viable, lowest cost capital solution if we're going to be able to liberate these resources and to take advantage of the kind of demand that I've been describing this afternoon. This is objective as being what's driven our proposed infrastructure solution that would see a connection between the Galilee and the existing infrastructure in North Queensland. <clears throat> a solution that we believe would save a billion dollars in the capital cost of being able to unlock the, uh, the Galilee coal reserves. Likewise, we appreciate and share with our mining colleagues a degree of frustration about development timeframes for the Galilee Basin. There's round after round, as we know, of legal challenge, ongoing environmental controversy and a multitude of environmental and regulatory requirements to traverse. Beyond that, of course, as I say, there's a number of commercial and market hurdles that still have to be overcome. In this context, I'd simply remind people that here, as I've demonstrated, we, Australia, we, Queensland, have an outstanding economic opportunity with the high energy, low ash coal that we produce. The global demand is strong, the Indian demand is strong, notwithstanding the changes in the energy mix that I've spoken to. We have here in Australia, among the world's strictest and most effective environmental requirements already in place and importantly we have a safety record as an industry which is second to none. <clears throat> and the reality is that if Australia doesn't supply the coal demands of developing nations, inevitably other countries certainly will and the net outcome of that will most likely be negative for carbon emissions as the alternative sources of coal don't measure up to those levels of quality that I've just spoken about out of the Galilee, out of Queensland, out of Australia. Finally then, let me turn to briefly go to Horizon's interest in country in India. So I've been talking about the generality of trade, the opportunity for in-country investment, something of our business from a trade point of view, let me now talk a little about our interest, as I say, in country, in India. <clears throat> We've done a fair bit, in fact, of preliminary work to look at direct involvement in rail and logistics opportunities in India. As I mentioned at the start of my remarks, 
uh, in June, two of my colleagues and I had the great privilege of spending a week in India. We engaged with a wide range of key ministers, uh, of department heads, representatives from the business and the financial community. As I said before, we came away from this visit with a tremendous sense of optimism. The momentum of economic growth and, frankly, the political desire, the political desire to get it done, to get these reforms done, to make a difference and to see a difference was, was really very, very encouraging as well as being stark. No doubt, of course, we all uh, need to weigh the optimism against the risks and the degrees of difficulty in entering such a dynamic market. But our agenda, our agenda at Horizon is simple, to explore growth markets where we can leverage our capability in rail-based integrated supply chains. Where better prima facie than in India? We're in no particular rush to do that with respect to India, nor, frankly, anywhere else internationally. We will be disciplined. We will be deliberative in assessing these opportunities. Concurrently, though, increasingly we understand the criticality of the need to continue to develop understanding, the need to develop relationships, the need to develop specific knowledge, so that we are as well positioned as we can be to take maximum advantage of whatever opportunity does come. In this regard, I'd like to acknowledge, frankly, the tremendous support that at Horizon we've received from Australia's High Commissioner to India, Patrick Suckley. His business and government introductions were just tremendous. Uh, we had the most amazing work. Uh, and, and having been many times and, uh, and had many associations to be able to, uh, to pack in uh, uh, the kind of interactions uh, was, uh, was really quite, uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, and, and so I make the comment, both in acknowledging Patrick and his team, but also saying uh, to my colleagues in this room and elsewhere what a tremendous resource we have. Uh, in the uh, in the High Commission, what a what a tremendously passionate advocate for this relationship is our High Commissioner and his team. On the back of all of that, we do have a team continuing to work through this range of questions and thoughts that emerge from our visit and opportunities that we continue to identify. And whilst there's nothing imminent, the nature and the scale of the opportunity is such that we simply can't ignore it. We understand the meaning of patience and reflection and that's what we're prepared to do. Let me go on from that though to make a few closing observations then on the broader opportunity for Australia. First though to make this again observation that there seems at the moment to be much wringing of hands in political, business, community circles about the economic future of Australia. Where to go from here for national income, for jobs, for our currently high standard of living. 
if you read the paper and listen to the pundits every day, you could be forgiven for believing uh, that the mining boom has come to an end. And indeed, the last rites are being read over the body of the uh, resource sector in Australia. <clears throat> As hopefully I've gone some way to demonstrate this afternoon, the facts simply don't support that narrative. Frankly, this is about opportunity unbounded. This is about getting ourselves out of the doom and gloom mentality into the same kind of resourcefulness mentality that I described around those folks that loaded that 50 tonnes of coal <coughs> on that bark in the late 18th century to open up the coal trade for Australia in the first instance. The Indian growth story that we've spoken about this afternoon is happening right now, and it's happening on our doorstep. It is happening and will happen for decades to come. It offers extraordinary opportunity for Australia and for Australian business. And as much as my business is predominantly associated with the resource sector at the moment, the opportunity is so broadly based in India, beyond those traditional exports of merchandise to services, to education, to tourism. It's unmistakably massive. Let's not kid ourselves, though. We do need to be smart. We need to be responsive. We need to be disciplined in our approach. We need to understand what's happening on the ground in India. We need to understand the nature and the pace of economic reform being championed by Prime Minister Modi. We all, it seems to me, need to not found all of this simply on optimism. 